High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a triumph of the Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Jean and Jane. I don't know if I'm unhappy because I'm not free, or if I'm not free because I'm unhappy. I say our responsibility as Americans is to be concerned about what our country is doing. The suicide of Jean Seberg, the young actress from Iowa. Are you ready to do the workout? Our previous three episodes in this series have been split. One half for Jean, one half for Jane. For the next two weeks, we'll take the full episode to concentrate on just one of these stars. Today, we'll explore the life and career of Jean Seberg from mid-1960 through around late 1968. This period marked the peak of her career as an actress, In the aftermath of Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, Jean became an international icon of youth style. For the next few years, she had a thriving career that took her back and forth between the U.S. and France. Even though most of the movies she made turned out to be disappointing, her personal life kept her in the news and helped to create an aura around her as an American girl with the style, worldview, and sexual politics of a French woman. And depending on your point of view, this was either the best of both worlds or the worst. But Seberg's real personal life was much more complicated than her image, and it included a secret, out-of-wedlock child fathered by a man who unflatteringly pillaged Jean's personality for source material, for books and a movie. As Jean's identity began to split further between the different versions of herself that she presented in Paris, in Marshalltown, Iowa, and in the movies, the real her began to get lost. In the middle of this muddle, she gave perhaps her best performance as a schizophrenic in Robert Rawson's Lilith. This movie would come to define the rest of Jean's life and career, probably more than it should have. Join us, won't you, for Chapter 4 
of Jean and Jane. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. When last we left her, Jean Seberg had withered in the intense spotlight brought by the success of Breathless, and she had gone home to Iowa to recuperate from a breakdown. In June 1960, a rejuvenated Jean returned to Paris to film her soon-to-be ex-husband Francois Moroy's directorial debut. By now, thanks to Breathless, Jean was in high demand amongst French directors, and she quickly lined up two additional Paris-set films, Time Out for Love and Five Day Lover. Five Day Lover would be billed as Jean's first comedy, although despite some moments of sex farce, it's more of a dramedy, as if to force the audience to differentiate her from the child woman who wore her St. Joan haircut in all of her subsequent significant films. Director Philippe de Broca had her wear her hair brown and chin length. It has the desired effect. Though just 21 years old when the film was shot, Jean is totally convincing as a cosmopolitan adult, a woman who has been married long enough to have given birth to two young children and to apparently have had more than one extramarital affair. In my mind, I don't think Seberg ever looked more beautiful. Jean's character, Claire, is an English woman married to a kind but unglamorous French academic. While he's at work each day, she goes out into the streets of Paris and lives her own life, which seems to work fine as long as she scrambles home in time to serve the cassoulet. At a fashion show hosted by her designer girlfriend, Claire meets a man and begins an affair with him. She doesn't know that he's actually the designer's gigolo. The designer, however, soon figures out that she and Claire are sharing the same man, and she arranges to have both her lover and his lover and her husband attend the same party. After this, her lover tells Claire that he wants to give up the charade, that he dreams of locking her in a house, quote, amenable and always ready. But it's clear to us that Claire doesn't want to get rid of her husband or exchange him for a younger model. She doesn't want to be amenable on anyone's terms but her own. If they left their partners for one another, she rhetorically asks her toy boy, then what would I do all day? The movie basically ends with her husband telling her he's fine with her having affairs because it makes him love her more when she comes back to him. Like Bonjour Tristesse and Breathless before it, Five Day Lover has a scene in which Jean tells us something about her character by the way she grooms herself while looking at her reflection in the mirror. If it takes three of something to make a trend, then we can say that by 1961, with three of these scenes, one of the through lines of Jean's on-screen persona was, to put it simply, narcissism. 
But each of these films also reflect, no pun intended, their male filmmakers' fascination with how women construct a mask over their real selves in order to present themselves for men. With this theme in mind, Five Day Lover's version of this scene is the most narratively dynamic. Returning from an afternoon with her boyfriend, Claire slips off to the mirror while calling out to her husband that she has to put her face on. We then see her private ritual. She brushes back her sexy blowout into demure mom hair, takes off false eyelashes, and wipes off her lipstick. Putting her face on for her husband entails taking off the face that she's put on for her afternoon rendezvous. Five Day Lover was recently restored and rediscovered. You can rent it on iTunes. And it's really good, and I think important to watch if you want to get a sense of what Gene Seberg was capable of, and of the precarious moment in cinema that we're talking about here, particularly in regards to how movies depicted women and their sex lives. Director Philippe de Broca had been an assistant to Francois Truffaut, and that, combined with Jean's breathless cred, conferred on this movie the idea that it was French New Wave adjacent. In actuality, it's a beautifully made film in a more or less classical style, built around, for lack of a better word, a New Wave heroine, who was far more modern than a comparative American film would have allowed her to be. At roughly the same time that Jean was in Paris playing a frankly sexually voracious mother, in a narrative entirely driven by her character's desire, Jane was appearing in American movies like Period of Adjustment, which, as we've seen, positioned her as a frigid sex kitten in a battle of the sexes that could only end with her capitulating to the desires of men. Jean's divorce from Francois Moroy came through that September. She had never told Francois that she had actually filed the paperwork, so he wasn't aware that the divorce was coming through until he was served the papers. Miserable and enraged, he had the French courts declare the divorce illegitimate, and then he sued Jean for divorce in France, where he won, thus obviating his responsibility to pay alimony. In his suit, Francois named Romain Gary as correspondent to Jean's infidelity. This could have blossomed into the kind of scandal that would have been the diplomat's worst nightmare. But both he and Jean strenuously denied that they were romantically involved, while behaving to the contrary. In reality, they were living together in an apartment that Gary had rented on the Ile Saint-Louis. Gary's wife, Leslie, didn't think the affair would last, so she decided not to protest it. After all, Garia was showing no signs of asking her for a divorce, and the older woman believed that the younger woman was an opportunist who would eventually, quote, move on and do better. The affair was an open secret in the French media. Gary and Jean began giving joint interviews. He was a self-styled Pygmalion who spoke pityingly of Jean as a typical American, damning her with faint praise for her, quote, intellectual curiosity, given where she came from. In one interview, he listed all the books he had forced Jean to read, from Pushkin to Balzac, and then Jean interjected her enthusiasm for Madame Bovary, which, she added, could have been me if I had stayed in Marshalltown one day longer. She is an absolutely marvelous reader, Gary said. She always finishes the book. Showing her wit and metal, Jean shot back, Except a couple of yours, sweetie. She then said to the reporter, What Roman thinks is that I'm still a dumb farm girl. More of what Roman thought about Jean had made its way into his recent novel, The Talent Scout, published in 1961. There was a character in the book transparently based on Jean, with, quote, short, almost boyish hair, and an idealism that more often than not defied logic and got her hurt. This character is first met drunkenly wandering into a dangerous world of men. The dictator who takes her as a mistress says he first met her when she quote-unquote staggered into his nightclub 
with a story of having been raped and robbed by a taxi driver, an incident the man treats as an everyday occurrence, which she had stupidly taken, quote, rather badly. That American cow, Gary wrote in the voice of the dictator, had true goodness in her, but it had taken him some time to discover this because she was so willing in bed, and he did not think the two could go together. A man who was happy to take advantage of this woman's willingness could not help but have prejudices against her for wanting sex as much as he did. In late 1961, Jean commented obliquely on her love triangle in an interview with French Elle magazine. Asked about divorce, she noted that French people, quote, prefer to cheat on one another as much as possible, while Americans divorce. It's more honest. Asked directly about Leslie Blanche, Jean said, she's a very nice woman, I must admit, but she's been separated from Ramon Gary for a very long time. By January 1962, Jean's very cosmopolitan impasse had reached Iowa. The Des Moines Register, using a few French gossip columns as sources, lifted the lid on the difficulty Jean was having getting Gary to choose her over his wife. In a story headlined, Jean Seberg, idolized, is saddest American. This caused a middle American scandal, and it unfortunately coincided with the Iowa debut of Breathless. The community Jean grew up in, with no frame of reference for a movie styled such as Godard's, became convinced that if Jean was acting at all in Breathless, she was playing herself, and that herself was an immoral tart with no concept of loyalty or propriety. Jean had gone off and lived an adventurous life, but she still desperately craved her parents' approval. And the media attention given to Jean's menage a trois was a nightmare for them. Jean had tried to hide from them what was really going on in her life, including the fact that she was now pregnant with Gary's child. The culture was slowly changing, but it would still have been shocking for a woman in 1962 to give birth to a child fathered by a man who she not only wasn't married to, but whom was married to someone else. Minor movie star or not, Jean was at this point almost 23, probably the same age and around the same time period as Peggy on Mad Men when she found herself giving birth to Pete Campbell's secret baby. Like Peggy, Jean Seberg in 1962 was living the life of an independent, working woman. But inside, she carried with her her conservative, religious upbringing. And the conflict between the two made her so self-loathing that she would start to develop a personality split. Jean's son, Alexander Diego Gary, was secretly born in the summer of 1962. Jean spent the last months of her pregnancy in hiding, and she and Ramon later purchased fake papers adjusting the son's birth date to the following year. Jean hid the existence of the child from even some of her oldest friends for a few years. Her parents had no idea that they had a grandson, until Jean convinced them to join her new family in Mallorca in the summer of 1964. When they arrived, Jean presented her two-year-old and said, Meet your grandson. One person who knew all about Jean's baby was Leslie Blanche, who agreed to divorce Gary, although she would later speak unkindly of Jean, essentially accusing her of having successfully worked a long con. Of course, Pregnancy was a lever that a woman of her type would use, Blanche would later say. It is really rather naive to think that she was going to get an abortion, I must say. She wasn't going to give up that handle. It was the classic gambit for someone like her, who was pretty and ruthless. Yes, that's how I describe her, pretty and ruthless. She had no style or discipline. 
and she wasted a great deal of my ex-husband's time and money. I certainly gave the divorce as soon as it was asked. But I can tell you, Roman wasn't rushing things up to then. Almost immediately after the birth, Jean left her child with Eugenia Munoz, her Spanish maid, and left for Switzerland to shoot her first Hollywood movie in three years, an adaptation of a couple of Irving Shaw stories called In the French Style. Unaware that she had just given birth, Shaw, who was producing the film, awkwardly confronted Jean about her weight. She promised she'd be in shape by the time they started filming. In the French Style was sort of Hollywood's attempt at making a version of the movies Jean had been making in France, in that it told the story of an idealistic American girl who loses her innocence through sex and amoral European nightlife. The big difference between In the French Style and Jean's previous movies is that In the French Style is pretty boring. The scene in which Jean and her boyfriend, a French guy who deplores Parisian decadence, go to a hotel to try to have sex, takes forever and is uniquely unsexy. It can't help but recall the scene in Breathless, set in Jean's hotel room, in which the banter between Jean and Jean-Paul Belmondo about why she won't have sex with him essentially becomes ten minutes of foreplay. I may not like in the French style, but Jean felt that it was true, in some ways, to her real experience as an American girl in Paris. The film included a scene in which the character's father urges her to come home, and she explains why she no longer belongs in Chicago. This scene closely resembled conversations that Jean had had in real life with her father. And Columbia, still the studio that paid Jean, was happy with the movie, so much so that they started pushing the actress for the role that, it would turn out, would have the greatest impact on her personal life of any movie she'd make. Tragically so. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1949, director Robert Rawson's All the King's Men won the Oscar for Best Picture. In 1951, Rawson was subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Having been a member of the Communist Party, Rawson refused to name names of his comrades, and he was subsequently blacklisted from working under his own name in Hollywood. Two years later, he appeared before Congress again, and named dozens of names. He went back to work, and in 1961, he co-wrote, produced, and directed The Hustler, a major hit for which Rawson himself was nominated for three Oscars. So he was back in a position of power when he began assembling his next film, a drama about a beautiful mental patient and the men she drives mad at Columbia. Columbia wanted Rawson to cast Jean as the schizophrenic, sexually voracious title character in Lilith, but Rawson didn't want Jean for the part. Then, on a trip through Europe with his male star, Warren Beatty, which Beatty's biographer Peter Biskin described as a casting couch bacchanal, Rawson met with Jean in Paris. He now realized how close she was to how he saw the character. She's got that flawed American girl quality, Rawson would say. Sort of like a cheerleader who's cracked up. Seberg began working on Lilith in April 1963, with Roman accompanying her to Maryland for the shoot. Rawson had fought to preserve the rural East Coast location of the novel on which the film was based. For authenticity, and also because it would allow him to work with some distance from Hollywood. Outside of the crucible of the studio... Rawson would make a highly visually impressionist film, with two lead performances that aimed to take the Marlon Brando school of screen acting 
to another level. Lilith takes place at a mental hospital in the Maryland woods. We're introduced to the place through newcomer Warren Beatty, who is playing Vincent, a psychologically wounded veteran who begins training at the hospital to become an occupational therapist. Vincent immediately witnesses a problematic relationship between two patients. Stephen, played by Peter Fonda, Jane's brother, as the 60s version of a nerd in Buddy Holly glasses and a seersucker suit, and Lilith, the gorgeous schizophrenic temptress, played by Jean. Stephen is obsessed with Lilith and will do anything for her. And Lilith knows this and takes advantage of it. At first, it seems like she might just be playing games, like it could be typical young woman bad behavior, like Cecile in Bonjour Tristesse and Patricia in Breathless before her. Vincent, initially fully aware that there is a precarious situation between Lilith and Stephen, two unstable people with more going on inside than it seems, begins spending time with Lilith and totally forgets what he rationally knows. He falls in love with her, and they start having a secret affair. It becomes increasingly clear that Lilith is a nymphomaniac, or at least a Hollywood movie circa 1964's idea of one. Although it should be said that Lilith doesn't look or feel like a typical Hollywood movie of its era. Visually, it goes back and forth between a dissolve-heavy surrealism, reminiscent of European silent movies, and an almost documentary-like realism. Rawson did use some documentary-style methods. He built a sequence around a real jousting tournament taking place near the location, and even within the extremely heightened circumstances, the performances of Seberg and Beatty are incredibly naturalistic for this moment in Hollywood cinema. Beatty, playing an atypically introverted character for him, mumbles much of his dialogue in a way that feels like what might happen if you told an actor to imitate Marlon Brando based on the negative reviews of Brando's early performances without letting him actually look at Brando himself. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Again, the circumstances of the plot are so histrionic and borderline soapy that his understatement is welcome but it was apparently the result of Beatty's unhappiness with the way Rawson was directing the film, and the fact that the director was paying more attention to his lead actress than to his lead actor. Beatty was right to be paranoid. He's blown off screen by Seberg, whose shifts between her character's states of mind are seamless, almost imperceptible changes of personality taking place behind a gorgeous facade. She wears her hair blonde and long in this movie, looking more conventionally beautiful than ever. She looks like such a normal, pretty girl, in fact, that we're totally with Vincent as he rationalizes when things start to get weird. By the end of the movie, when she's furiously masturbating under the covers while admitting that her incestuous relationship with her brother led to his suicide, we're as baffled as Beatty's character because we've been so sucked into the illusion that she was just a few notches away from normal and that he could save her. Jean met with a number of young mental patients during the prep process, including one so-called all-American girl like herself who hid under the covers during their visit, compulsively masturbating and refusing to let Jean see her face. This was behavior that Jean perfectly recreated for her climactic scene. Another patient, a boy, told Jean that he had seen her in Breathless. You were so beautiful, he told her, that you made me crazy. Hailed as a major new film star after his debut two years before in Splendor in the Grass, Beatty was a handful on the set of Lilith, causing delays by agonizing over how to play his role and frequently changing the dialogue, which had been written by director Rawson. Beatty was not keen to play second banana to Seberg, who Rawson believed was the true star of the movie. The difficulties came to a head when it was time to shoot a scene in which Lilith slaps Vincent. On every take, against Rawson's direction, Beatty would hold his arm up in front of his face to block her hand, in what Peter Fonda compared to a karate chop. 
After a few takes of this, bruises started to form on her wrist. Peter Fonda threatened to kick Beatty's ass if he didn't cut it out. Actually, to quote Fonda, his exact words were, If he hits her again, I'm going to slug him. I'll step on his dick in the parking lot. A studio rep, protective of Beatty, made sure that no slugging or dick-stepping actually occurred. When Lilith was released, Jean's performance got some good reviews, but the movie was widely panned, and no one went to see it. This was heartbreaking for Seberg, who had put everything she had into the performance and thought it was the best work she had ever done. She didn't know what more she could do. She took the rejection of the film as a personal rejection, and it broke her heart. Some close to Jean believed she had taken the movie too personally. Already she was living something of a double life, going back and forth between small-town innocence and sophisticated international mistress. After throwing herself into replicating schizophrenia in Lilith, Jean's own mental state would become increasingly unstable. While Jean was filming Lilith in Maryland, she and Romant were invited to dinner at the White House. Romant was totally starstruck by the glamorous Jack and Jackie Kennedy. At one point, the First Lady took Jean aside and asked her if she planned to marry Gary. When Jean said, maybe, Jackie gave her a bit of advice. Don't, she said. They lose all interest in you once you do. Jean did not follow this advice. In October 1963, she and Ramon married on the island of Corsica. Now officially the partner of an older, important Frenchman, Jean submitted to a high-fashion makeover and became a character in the French media. The young, fashionable American who was eagerly learning how to be French in order to fulfill her role as Gary's wife. In reality, Jean found her new role as the impeccably dressed hostess and helpmate to a great man, something of a bore. Except for on movie sets, she was never around people her own age. She did continue to work. After reteaming with Belmondo to star in Jean Becker's Backfire, Jean returned to the States to make two Hollywood movies. She was cast as a faux Hitchcock blonde in Moment to Moment, directed by Mervyn Leroy, a studio stalwart who was nearing year 40 of his career. Moment to Moment was Hollywood's test to see if Jean could essentially replace Grace Kelly as an immaculate yet worldly blonde sex icon. It wasn't exactly a good part, certainly not after Lilith, but it was at least supposed to have good commercial prospects, and the paycheck allowed Jean and her new husband to rent a lavish house on Coldwater Canyon in Beverly Hills. Unfortunately, with Leroy at the helm, moment to moment was not of the moment. Though he had recently directed the hit Gypsy, Leroy wasn't exactly modern in his sensibility. As Jean's co-star Arthur Hill put it, we were trapped inside this 1937 movie. Only it was 1965. After Moment to Moment, Jean was again lavishly paid to appear in a supporting role in a film called A Fine Madness, starring Sean Connery as a Greenwich Village poet-slash-philandering asshole and Joanne Woodward as his long-suffering wife. Jean would play the buttoned-up high-society wife of a psychiatrist who Connery consults for his writer's block. Seberg and Connery end up at the same sanitarium, where would-be hilarious sex occurs. The movie ends with Seberg leaving her husband for Connery, who stays with his wife, who tells him she's pregnant, and then he accidentally punches her in the face. It is literally supposed to be a punchline to a movie that thinks it's a comedy skewering the social fads of the 60s, on behalf of men who just want to be men. Watching it today, it's possibly the most painfully misogynistic Hollywood comedy I've ever seen. 
Jean did not have a higher opinion of the movie. In fact, she hated making it, and hated it even more when she saw the finished product and saw that the few scenes she thought she had been good in had been cut out. What remained of her character gave no indication why she'd throw her life away for Connery's 'er ne'er-do-well. One scene that did remain was the sex scene between Jean and Connery, set in a giant bathtub. Jean had never filmed a nude scene and wasn't excited about it. She had wanted to wear a full body stocking, but the wardrobe department wasn't able to create one that would film well in the water. With trepidation, she arrived on set wearing flesh-colored modesty pasties with a grim expression on her face. In the hopes of livening things up, Connery had a bunch of champagne brought to the set, and as the crew was setting up, he steadily refilled Jean's glass. When they were ready to shoot, Connery stripped fully naked and got into the tub. According to director Irving Kirshner, the champagne had the desired effect. By the end of the day, Kirshner recalled, Jean's pasties had flown off and she was laughing and splashing around in the water and having a good time. Maybe she was having a good time. Many women, and men, would have had a good time spending an afternoon naked and drunk with Sean Connery circa 1965. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't something icky about the idea of getting an actress drunk so that she would cross a boundary that she had set while sober. The tone of Kirshner's anecdote is that Jean was a prude and stick in the mud who needed men to trick her into having a good time. Neither of these Hollywood movies did well. Jean went back to France and appeared in two Claude Chabrol films, neither of which reversed the inevitable. Without a recent hit, studios and producers started losing interest in her. Jean was frustrated by the lack of opportunities available to her. Meanwhile, Romain hated the movies that had been made based on his writings. So the husband decided to try to produce and direct a film based on one of his short stories as a gift to his wife. The production, which Gary would helm as his directorial debut, was a disaster. Birds in Peru begins with Jean lying on a beach with a brown-skinned man on top of her, thrusting. As the scene, which is not short, unfolds, we see enough to deduce that this encounter is occurring amidst the detritus of a carnival. Jean is completely naked, with only sand artfully caked on her body for modesty. Her facial expression looks like pain and revulsion, and the only intelligible words she says are no, but from the way she throws her head back, and given that the camera keeps cutting to her trying to grip the sand, I guess we're supposed to read it as ecstasy. When this guy finishes, another guy, this one in a grotesque silver mask, climbs on top of Jean and starts his own thrusting. This time she turns her head to the side so that she doesn't have to look at him. When these men leave, Jean puts on her cocktail dress and walks to the shore. A teenage boy appears out of nowhere, cut to him lying in the sand in post-coital exhaustion and Jean walking away from the camera. Again, this is how this movie begins. Her character, still unsatisfied, moves on to a brothel. All the while, her husband and his chauffeur drive around looking for her. The portrait that emerges of how Ramon Gary saw Jean Seberg between the talent scout and Birds in Peru was essentially of a nymphomaniac whose sexual urges were dangerous in part because there was no intellect driving them. This is, obviously, a pretty horrible way for a man to betray the woman he's married to. It also jibes with a couple of insane comments that other men made about Seberg around this time. These other men were not romantically involved with her, as far as I can tell, but they spoke of Jean as though the essential thing that made her Jean Seberg was that she made men think she wanted to have sex with them. Here's one example. When she worked with George Peppard on the movie Pendulum, Jean told friends that he was constantly hitting on her and didn't want to take no for an answer. Peppard remembered that Jean generally kept to herself on set, 
Yet he also described her, quote, curious kind of come on, an aura that said that she wanted to get involved. Maybe Jean was sexually insatiable and or indiscriminate. Maybe she was a tease. But I say, never trust a man who insists that a woman's aura wants to fuck him when the woman says she does not. Too artistically unconvincing to make up for its general sordidness, Birds in Peru was nearly banned in France until Gary used his government connections to pull some strings. It was submitted for approval in the States shortly after the production code was phased out in favor of the first iteration of the modern rating system. And under that new system, it became the first film to be rated X. Jean saw the movie once at a friends and family screening in LA. And by the end of it, she whispered to her companion, get me out of here. She was totally humiliated and angry that her husband had so abused the trust she had placed in him. Birds in Peru aside, a fault line was growing in the middle of the marriage between Jean, who was nearing the end of her 20s, and her husband, who was twice her age. In some ways, Jean was still the giant-hearted little girl who had rescued every stray pet and had boldly become a 14-year-old member of the NAACP. But now, the world was changing. In 1965, the Watts riots had upset her greatly. Not long after, she'd gone to Columbia, the country, not the studio, to make a movie. And witnessing the contrast between the luxury she enjoyed there as a visiting American and the poverty the natives lived in, further awakened her social consciousness. If I had lived in South America, she declared later, I would have fought with Che. When Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in April 1968, Jane was in Washington, D.C. to shoot a small part in the film Pendulum. There were riots in many American cities in response to King's killing, but Washington was the epicenter of some of the most intense unrest. There were fires and looting, and Lyndon Johnson called in the National Guard. Jean's heart was with the protesters. The indifference of the white population is almost total, she observed in a letter to a friend back in France. Instead of improving conditions in the ghetto, they are buying arms to defend themselves. You get the impression of being in a profoundly sick country, which doesn't believe in its illness. When he met her at a party around this time, columnist Pete Hamill was surprised by the earnestness with which Jean listened when he, quote, for two hours tried to tell her about Vietnam. She didn't flirt, Hamill noted. Instead, she asked him, it's all connected, isn't it? Vietnam, the oppression of blacks in America, all of it. When Hamill asked her to elaborate, Jean said, It's all part of the same disgusting racism. If we were fighting the war against Swedes, we wouldn't be doing these things. But because it's Orientals, we can do anything. Like Hiroshima being bombed instead of Berlin. Jean's passion for causes annoyed her husband. He dismissed her as, quote, a typical American idealist. That is to say, an easy mark. He also had his hands full with unrest in France. It was Gary, not Jean, who was in Paris for the strikes and protests of May 1968. Jean was in Oregon, shooting Paint Your Wagon. Jean had been relieved to get an offer to play the female lead in a big Hollywood movie after the disaster that was Birds in Peru. This symbol of the new wave would now star in one of the films that would become synonymous with the dinosaurs of the studio system limping into extinction. Paint Your Wagon is a nearly three-hour musical set in Gold Rush-era rural California. At the beginning of the movie, Lee Marvin's Ben, an ordinary but essentially good-hearted drunk with a wandering spirit, saves the life of a soft-spoken stranger played by Clint Eastwood, and known only as Partner. Ben declares that from here on out, the two are partners, 
which means that they share not just labor, but all spoils and responsibilities, including debts. They live in a gold panning community populated by about 400 men, including about a dozen Chinese immigrants, but not a single woman. All of the men live in tents and do their bartering and gambling and drinking in temporary structures. And then a Mormon man passes through town with his two wives in tow, and he is soon convinced to put the more troublesome of these wives, Elizabeth, played by Seberg, up for auction. Ben is not the richest or the loneliest man in town, but he is the drunkest, and in a stupor, he finds himself outbidding all other comers, although he's so far gone that partner has to say I do for him at the wedding. On their wedding night, as a condition of performing her wifely duties, Elizabeth asks Ben to build her a real cabin, a permanent structure with a door and a fireplace. Soon the rest of the men in the community decide that they want women too, so they put Ben in charge of kidnapping a stagecoach full of quote-unquote French tarts, who they've heard are headed to a nearby town. In order to accommodate the arrival of half a dozen prostitutes, the rest of the men set to work building a real town, including a glorious hotel-slash-casino-slash-brothel. Then Elizabeth decides that she's in love with both Ben and partner, so they start living together as a threesome. All is well at first, so well that it seems like they've all successfully created a utopia in which they've rewritten all the rules, until Ben's plan to secretly siphon fallen gold dust backfires and results in the literal destruction of the whole town, as well as the menage a trois. In the end, Paint Your Wagon becomes a crazy parable about how greed, decadence, and sexual delirium can bring down a civilization. Paint Your Wagon was based on a hit Broadway play. Although, under the auspices of screenwriter Patty Chayefsky and director Joshua Logan, who you'll remember as the quickly discarded would-be Jane Fonda's Vengali, the plot was changed considerably. The movie was pushed into production after the massive success of The Sound of Music. But Logan was savvy enough to recognize that movies like Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate were making bank by speaking to a new generation. So, the three-way relationship was invented for the film, supposedly as a sop to the hippies. Jean described her character as a 19th century flower child. If you watch the movie with the idea that it's really about the late 60s version of free love in mind, then the eventual total breakdown of communal living that it depicts could be seen as in line with the apocalyptic ends of contemporaneous movies with actual countercultural cred, such as Zabriskie Point and Easy Rider. But Paint Your Wagon was never considered cool, not even by the dying studio system that desperately produced it in an effort to save itself. The film quickly went way over budget, in part because director Joshua Logan chose a location that was so far away from the nearest town that the cast and crew had to be airlifted onto set every day by helicopter. Though it was a significant box office hit, it couldn't make back its production costs. And soon Paint Your Wagon would become synonymous with the bloated, square studio system that had to be broken down by a new generation and built up again. Robert Evans, who was beginning his stint as head of production at Paramount when Paint Your Wagon went into production, used the film as an example of the fact that playing by the old Hollywood rules was no longer working. Evans then showed everyone in the industry an alternative way of doing things, with The Godfather. Jean amused herself during the long shoot by having an affair with Clint Eastwood. Both were married to other people, but their spouses hadn't come on location. When Ramon finally came to visit the set in August as a side trip to a publicity tour he was doing for a new novel, Jean told him what was going on between her and Clint. As she put it later, I got a crush on someone else, and because I'm a bad liar, I had to tell Ramon about it. Ramon then challenged his rival to a duel. They never went through with it, and instead, Ramon left and Jean called her publicist, confessed she was madly in love with Clint Eastwood, 
and that she needed help announcing that she was getting divorced. She assumed Eastwood would leave his wife, too. But when the location shoot was over and the production returned to Paramount, Clint totally ghosted her. It was marvelous while it lasted, Jean said later. It's always a bit of a shock to discover that people aren't sincere. Perhaps I have to grow up a little. Even without Clint as her safety net, Jean went through with the divorce. It was amicable, but when the dust settled, Jean found herself alone in her Coldwater Canyon house, paralyzed by depression. She drank too much, and too often mixed booze with Valium, and she essentially stopped leaving the house for a while. Without a man, she said, I'm like a ship without a rudder. When we return to Jean's story, she will have found a new man, but that relationship would do the opposite of stabilizing her life. First, next week, we'll catch up with Jane Fonda and trace her path from Barbarella to social activism. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for all of our episodes with information about sources, musical cues, and more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can find us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you haven't already, rating and reviewing the show and subscribing to it on iTunes really helps other people find it. You can also subscribe to the show on virtually anywhere else you can find podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.